Welcome to the Kenosha City Church Podcast. Get into chapter 20 of the book of Revelation with us as we look at why there can't be heaven without hell. Enjoy the message. Oh yeah, we are in the series, Are You Ready? This is a study uh, on the book of Revelation, and we are, we are getting through it here, all right? Uh, now, we are going to talk about, as Zach said, something light and fluffy today. You know, just inch deep, no big deal. Yeah, we're going to talk about hell, all right? So we're going to talk about hell. I know some of you are like, you didn't know that today, um, and you're like, oh, whoa, what's going on? Some of you got the push notification from our Kenosha City Church app. Love the little flames uh, that were on the, on the push notification. I'm like, oh, boy, we're going all in uh, today. And so, yes, we're going to talk about hell, but don't worry, because next week we are going to talk about heaven, all right? Is that cool? Can we talk about heaven next week? Yeah, all right, so, by the way, uh, last week, Will, Will did a great job last week. Thank you, Will. Let's give it up for Will. Now, I want to read a passage that came just after what Will preached on last week. It's going to be Revelation chapter 19. Go ahead and turn there. If you're regular here at uh, Kenosha City Church, we encourage you to turn in your Bibles or uh, use your online Bible or app. But we're going to be at Revelation chapter 19, verse 19. If this is your first time in church... Don't worry about it. Go to the table of contents. But the cool thing about the book of Revelation, it's the last book of the Bible, all right? If you've gone to the maps, you've gone too far, all right? So, Revelation chapter 19, verse 19. This is right after what Will spoke about last week. Uh, this is, uh, he talked about that, you know, the banquet, right? Well, what happened to the uh, Antichrist and all the, the bad guys? Well, here we go. Revelation chapter 19, verse 19. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered around to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army, that's Jesus. But the beast was captured with its false prophet, but performs the signs on its behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Now, this passage I just read was a picture of Armageddon for the last few weeks. We've alluded to the Battle of Armageddon. Uh, often, uh, Armageddon is the culmination of all the judgments that occur at the end of the world. The end of the world will occur, uh, what's called the Tribulation. The Tribulation are the last seven years of this world's history. Uh, during those seven years, there will be three sets of seven judgments in Armageddon. Uh, capstones all the judgments. Now, when you think of Armageddon, or when you uh, when it's when it's in secular vernacular, you often think of the Battle of All Battles. All right, um, I think Vladimir Putin says, "I will unleash Armageddon." All right, like even people say it in like war now as taunts. There's been movies made of it, and it's this big epic thing. And we often think of the bat the Battle of Armageddon as something like Star Wars, where you have the battle of good versus evil, and you're not exactly sure. Who's going to win? And the lightsabers come out and like, oh, this is going to be epic. Who's going to win, right? And so you don't really know. Uh, but this isn't a dualistic battle. Now, we don't live in a dualistic world. We live in a world where we see here in Scripture that in order to win the battle, all what has to happen is God has to show up. Amen? And that's exactly what we see here in the Battle of Armageddon. Is they, the whole world's evil forces, uh, they, they, they come together to battle the Lord, and the Lord shows up, and it's over, right? It's not Armageddon, it's more like Nomageddon, all right? And so we see here, at the culmination of Armageddon, we see the capture of the beast, the Antichrist, the false prophet, uh, those who have the mark of the beast on their heads, uh, they are... Uh, they are captured and they are thrown into what is the first mention of the Bible of what's called the lake of burning sulfur. Some of your translations may say the lake of fire. 
Uh, this is the final form of hell. So when someone's, when the Bible talks about the lake of fire, it is talking about the final form of hell. Uh, prior to this, you'll hear uh, hell described as maybe Hades, a number of other words. Uh, when people die before the end of the world, they go to Hades or hell, which is in this, pl- in this time a holding place. It's a holding place until Hades is thrown into the final form of hell, which is the lake of fire. All right? And so uh, we see here that the Antichrist is the first recipient of the lake of fire as Hades will be thrown in as well. This is the final form of hell. And so again, uh, people that are thrown into the lake of fire, we see here, uh, they will be alive, they'll be conscious, and there'll be eternal punishment away from God. It's terrible stuff. Uh, it's not a party, by the way. Uh, you, often, you often hear people like, oh, yeah, you know, I don't want to go to heaven because I'm going to go with all my friends and we're going to have this eternal party in hell. Yeah, we did it our way, right? And, you know, there's even songs. I think it was ACDC that's saying the highway to hell. And people like, they blare it in their car in the 70s and 80s, right? If you're blaring your car today thinking you're cool, uh, you might, might, might want to check with the Gen Z and see if that song's okay. Never has been okay. But what I'm trying to say is we try to glorify hell. We try to think like somehow it's this big party, but we see here it's not a party. It's not a party where rebellion rules. Rather, it's a place where rebellion comes to an end. The Bible describes hell as a real place of eternal conscious punishment where people will spend an eternity away from God in pain and agony of their sins. Hell is described as a dark lake of fire, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's awful. Now, you may have uh, heard about hell, maybe from a mean street preacher, right? Uh, you, may, you may have been somewhere and hear someone on the street corner, and all they're talking about is, you're going to hell. Maybe you've heard that guy, maybe you haven't. I've seen him a few times. My brother, he lives in Las Vegas. He's lived there for over a decade. I've shared parts of this story, but it's bare worth repeating due to our subject matter this morning. Uh, my brother was, went to Vegas because he's first stationed there in the military, and then after the military, he worked for McDonald's. He, he ran a McDonald's off Vegas Boulevard. It's really interesting. Um, he'd have very famous people come in. Uh, so my brother not only ran a McDonald's, but he began to train uh, a number of McDonald's uh, managers and operators all through the Vegas area. And if you know my brother, he's an evangelist as well. Uh, he, he was the McDonald's evangelist. Not only was he training people uh, to make uh, decent hamburgers. I know some of you are like, decent hamburgers at McDonald's? Hey, you can make decent hamburgers, right? Not only was he training people to make decent hamburgers, but he was leading people to Jesus and leading them to go to church with him. There was a revival in the Las Vegas Valley in the McDonald's all across that area as my brother was leading them uh, to, to church and to meet Jesus. Pretty cool, right? I would imagine for many of these operators Uh, of these McDonald's, the gospel my brother preached was a far contrast to the hellfire and brimstone you'd often see in the streets of Las Vegas. You see, my brother, he preached the the gospel of the Bible, the gospel which which means good news. Uh, And he taught it that it's only received by grace, which that's what the Bible says. It's by grace that you're saved, not of yourself, not by works so that nobody can boast. And so one time, I was, as I was visiting my brother and his family in Las Vegas, you know, whenever I said, like, oh, yeah, I've been, how many times have you been to Vegas? I've been to Vegas about a dozen times. Like, oh, aren't you a pastor? My brother lives there. There are Christians in that area. You know, whenever people are like, I hope God wipes Vegas off the map, I hope God saves Vegas. Because if you wipe it off the map during that time, I was like, you're going to kill my brother. Don't do that, all right? So, so we were walking down the streets, and as we walked, uh, we noticed this street performer, and he announced to everybody, hear ye, hear ye, watch me juggle sharp swords. And I thought, well, we got to stop for this one, right? <laughs> and so he, I'm going to watch this guy juggle sharp 
sharp swords. And he turned on his little boom box of techno music, and away he went. He started juggling like five swords. I'm like, some of them came within literally inches of his, of his bald head. I'm like, this is crazy. And as he was going at it with this, juggling the swords, I began to hear another booming voice. Entering the circle of the crowd of people watching the sword juggler was this mean street preacher with a portable PA system. And he began to hold up a sign within the crowd. He began to hijack the crowd from the, the sword juggler. And his sign said, you're all going to hell. And he began to yell it over his little uh, microphone. You're all going to hell. He looked at me, you're going to hell. I'm like, whoa, bro, I, I know Jesus. But you know, when someone's yelling that you're going to hell, you kind of got to check your heart a little bit. Like, really, I am? But I got, no, no. If you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus, you're a child of God. Nothing can take you from his hand, right? And so I'm like, whoa, 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 wait, wait, bro, you got this all wrong. And I tried to explain to him that, that I, I've placed my faith and trust in Jesus. I don't know why I had to prove that to him. And then he said over the loudspeaker, look, everybody, we have a teammate. I'm like, I'm not your teammate, all right? <laughs> I think we've all had a bad experience with the subject of hell. For many, hell has become just a byword or an expletive. When you're surprised of something, you let that word come out, what the, and then you use the word hell, not in its proper form. We have reduced hell, the concept of hell, to nothingness. For many in culture, if they do subscribe to hell, it's reserved only for the worst of the worst people. Murderers, despotic leaders, uh, your enemies, uh, and never you, never your family, never your neighbors. Oh, wait, hold up here. I love all my neighbors, okay, this isn't for me, but maybe, like, maybe you're like, oh, no, I, you don't know my neighbor, right? But we would never condemn ourselves to hell. I'm not like that person. I'm not like that despotic leader. So for many, hell has become objectionable, even in the church. How can a loving God send people to an eternal torture chamber and punishment for what they did on earth. For many, the idea of hell is a bridge too far. And as a result, many people, whether they know it or not, have become a practical universalist. A universalist is somebody who believes everybody goes to heaven. It's unbiblical. That's not what Jesus teaches. Uh, Jesus does not teach that everybody goes to heaven. That is nowhere found in the Bible. And yet people become a practical universalist because they don't want to talk about hell. Or people reject God altogether because of the idea of hell and they become atheists. Let me just put this out here. Hell may be objectionable. It may be even hard for you to hear this morning. But just because it's hard or just because you may have personal objections to the concept of hell doesn't make hell not real. In fact, I want to put this out here this morning as you're taking notes. Again, in the book of Revelation, you better take notes because you won't remember anything, all right? I know I wouldn't. Here's the main idea this morning. Is there can't be heaven if there is no hell. We all want heaven. We all want bliss. I've never been to a funeral where someone's like, oh, please, I, I, I'm going to speak that as if they're going to heaven, right? I've never been to a funeral where like, well, they're just in the ground and being eaten by worms. Nobody's ever said that at a funeral I've ever been to. I know there's probably some people that say that. They're, they're the outlier. You see, everybody wants to go to heaven and be in eternal bliss with Jesus, but there can't be heaven if there is no hell. So let me explain. First, I'm going to explain this morning why there's objections to hell. 
Secondly, I want to explain why there must be hell. And third, we're going to look at the realities because there's hell, all right? So let's talk about some objections. And I want to thank Mark Clark and his wonderful book, The Problem of God. Uh, he has a whole extended survey on this that was very helpful. And so let's talk about a few objections to hell. Number one, the objection number one that you may hear is hell is unjust. Now, I don't believe that, but these are objections that maybe you might feel in your heart or maybe you've heard. That hell is unjust. If hell is a place for people who have never placed their faith and trust in Jesus, if hell is a place that is, that's eternal, conscious punishment for all those who have rejected Jesus, well, what if a person was nice? Let's just, let's just really pull the heartstrings here. What about that nice grandma that just passed? That nice grandma that baked cookies for the kids in the neighborhood, always with a smile. She didn't go to church. She didn't place her faith and trust in Jesus. You mean to tell me that nice grandma who baked the, kid, baked the cookies for my kids is swimming in the same pool of fire as, as the world's worst despots? Really? Ooh, it gets emotional, doesn't it? Some of us are getting nervous about the concept of hell when, when, it's, when it's formulated in place that way. When an objection is made like this, it's emotional. It's called an emotional argument. Emotional argument, by the way, are not just reserved for hell. It's the reason why that we see things, whether uh, any cultural thing, 2020 was full of emotional arguments. And emotional arguments that are devoid of truth suck in people by the droves. And what they find themselves on the other end is they haven't been walking in a biblical fashion. And they have subscribed to unbiblical theology and ways of life. Hell is no different. People often shape hell with very emotional arguments that tug at your heart. It makes you immediately reason in the flesh. And it makes you want to look for an alternative to the reality of hell. But here's the danger of the emotional argument. Emotions don't necessarily care about what's true about the matter. It wants to shock and awe your attention to where your emotions are drowning out the intellect of your mind. Emotional arguments devoid of logic creates what's called a cognitive dissidence. And when we approach theology with how we feel about theology or how it makes us feel, then we will immediately make theology to our liking instead of what God says in his word. Does that make sense? So back to grandma, that nice grandma, that sweet grandma who bakes cookies for the kids with a smile. It's an emotional argument. And emotional arguments can shape very powerful narratives. But we have to relook at the narrative. The emotional narrative is saying this. The nice, sweet grandma who bakes cookies, it says this. Is that good people go to heaven. And it'd be unjust for that good person to go to hell. It is not being good that makes you good with God. That's what the Bible says. And we have to understand that our mind has to trump our emotions. You see... Our hearts want to say we're good enough for God, but we're not good enough for God. Uh, good people don't get to a good God. Only redeemed and forgiven people get to a good God. We see this in Romans 3.10. It says there is no one righteous, not even one. The Bible is very, very clear. You are not made right with God by doing good things. And we're living in a society today where you must be perfect. We're living in a society today where you hear people say we must do better. You hear this. It's usually the tagline to whatever cultural thing that we say. Do better, do this. Uh, why didn't you do this? Fill in the blank, and I want you to know it's unsustainable. 
It's unsustainable. Why? Because you cannot find your salvation in yourself. You cannot find salvation in your own behavior. You can only find salvation in the blood of the cross of Jesus Christ who died on the cross and who rose from the dead. Amen, church? And it should bring you hope this morning. Because when you try to get to God and when you try to erase hell, when you try to live life in your own righteousness, you will always burn yourself out on religion. And my fear is this, is we often relegate people to, who have denied the Bible as being burnt out by religion. But even in 2020, with all the subjects that were going on there, I began to see the evangelical church fracture and get burnt out by religion, and we have not recovered. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says this, For you're saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it's God's gift, not from works so that no one may boast. We are not saved by works, we are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. Grace is God's undeserved favor. We are not born good. We are not born deserving heaven. We have all sinned, and as a result, we are separated from Almighty God. And unless we ask Jesus Christ to save us from our sins, we will be lost in our sins and bound for hell. We are not bound for glory without Christ. But God, so full of love and mercy, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, taking on our sin debt, raising from the dead, defeating sin and death when he rose from the dead, and offering you forgiveness. When you say yes to Jesus, he forgives you of all your sins, past, present, and future. When we forget that, we become by default works-based Christians. But I want you to know when you embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for your sins, when you place your faith and trust and hope in him alone, when you realize that he rose from the dead and what he did on the cross actually meant something, you are free, church. You're free indeed. And, and you never forget that. By his grace. It's not fair. We often talk about fairness, don't we? First time we probably ever talked about fairness is when we were kids, right? You go up to your mom and dad, that's not fair. I've seen it every day with my kids, right? I give an extra cookie to, my, to Elias because he's the oldest. And immediately if Etta and Graham find out, they come up to mommy and daddy. They come up and say, mommy, daddy, he had another cookie. That's not fair. And I smile at him and say, I know. Because <laughs> guess what? Life's not fair because we got the grace of God. You see, it's a good thing life is not fair because if it was fair, we would never receive the grace of Jesus Christ, which is undeserved favor. You follow me here, church? Grace is undeserved favor given to all those who receive. It's free. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace because without it, we are dead people walking. The grace of Jesus makes you alive. Church, never ever, ever forget that. Because we have too many Christians today playing the parts of the religious know-it-all, but they're really just zombies, right? You see, we can play, we can go back and play Halloween, right? A lot of churches are playing trick-or-treat, right? Where they're forgetting about the grace of Jesus and they're going back and they're starting to try to prove themselves with their works. And what I'm saying is this, there's a lot of worship services going on in America today where it looks more like Michael Jackson's thriller, right? Because they're playing the part of the walking zombie trying to be righteous in themselves instead of saying, Jesus, I know I was dead. Amazing grace. I, uh, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that you would save a wretch like me and you. There is no heaven 
if there is no hell. Why? Because sin unpunished is eternal cosmic injustice against the very character of God. Hell is required if you are, if you are to see the justice of God executed for all eternity. Heaven with sin would just be earth part two. We don't need any of that. We didn't like the first movie. We don't need a sequel. Hell might make us uncomfortable, but it doesn't take away hell's reality that hell exists. So, our first objection, hell is unjust. No, actually, it's just. Second objection I hear is hell is over the top. Mark Clark brings up this objection. He says this, if someone sins for just 80 years of your life, you mean to tell me they will be punished for eternity? I mean, think about that. This is, this is the objection. You mean to tell me this little bit of all of world history, God's going to punish you for all of, of, all of eternity? That, that seems cruel and unusual punishment. Why does the punishment have to be so long? This question has pushed some Christians to give up on the eternality of hell. Uh, there's a popular theology, even in evangelical circles, that are embracing a theology called annihilationism. This is the belief that God extinguishes everyone from existence when they die without Christ instead of being punished forever. That sounds like a good middle ground theology. If you want to be palatable, a little bit more palatable for society, like, yeah, you know, I just don't think we exist after we die. Oh, okay, right, right. That sounds like a good middle ground the uh, theology, right? But being biblical isn't finding middle ground. It's being biblical. What does the word of God say? Hell is forever. We saw this in Revelation chapter 14. I'll read again a description of hell, Revelation 14, 11. It says, and the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in its image or anyone who receives the mark of its name. It's forever and ever. Also, when we charge God with hell being over the top, we're actually minimizing the seriousness and offense that sin is against the character and holiness of God. The reason why Jesus had to go to the cross, the reason why Jesus had to go to the cross is that was the only way for sin to be paid. You see, we often focus on the pain that Jesus experienced on the cross. You know, the passion of the Christ, that was, that was, that was all about, right? You saw him get whipped, you saw him get nailed on the cross. And yes, those things were painful and those things should move your heart. But the most painful thing is when Jesus was on the cross and he felt the wrath of God fall on him for every single one of our sins, past, present, future. That is the most painful moment. That's what it took for our sins to be forgiven. Sin is not a, a, a small thing. Sin is a major thing that God incarnate had to come, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross, take on the wrath of God, die and resurrect so that we may have a way. Man, that is a demonstration of love, isn't it? Hell is another example of just how bad sin is and the danger everyone is in without receiving the forgiveness of Jesus. So hell is not over the top. It, it is just and it is, fits the crime. Another objection I hear from people is hell is outdated. Let's face it. There's a lot of people today that have never even mentioned hell in, in, their, in their messages or, or in their ministries, Right? Especially these, the, you go into a Christian bookstore or, 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 you, or you find online that the latest Christian book, guys, they want to make me puke, okay? It's all about you being better in this life now without preparing you for an eternity. And I believe there's a lot of people putting Christian principles in their lives this morning, but yet they don't know where their heart is eternally with Jesus. Does that make sense? They're making themselves look Christian without being a follower. It's crazy. 
And I believe one of the reasons why is we aren't really preaching the whole ramifications of the gospel. And the whole ramifications of the gospel cannot be devoid of hell. But yet many, even evangelical pastors today, they are embarrassed to talk about it. Oh man, in the age of Instagram and Facebook, I can't be caught dead, uh, giving hellfire and brimstone or talking about hell. I mean, that's uncool, it's outdated. It's, uh, let's just not talk, let's talk about the love of God instead of hell. You could be, because, and, and the reasoning is this. I mean, I could even fall into this trap. If, if I talk about the love of God, then people will be drawn to the love of God so they don't need to hear about the hell. Well, there, there's some truth to that. We, we lead people to Jesus to Jesus, not because they don't want to go to hell, Right? Uh, but the thing is, is that people need to know what they're being saved from. John three seventeen. you know what, let me just say this. As a result of many churches refusing to talk about hell, it's being minimized. Some people are saying it's not literal. Some pastors just don't want to talk about it. It's like a don't ask, don't tell policy when it comes to the role of theology. And this, is re, this has resulted in the reduction of urgency of mission and vision of reaching people with the gospel. Somehow it's become optional to reach people for the gospel. You hear the term gospel-centered. That's, we need to be gospel-centered. We need to be a church that, that permeates the realities of the gospel. But Jesus didn't call us just to be gospel-centered. He called us to be people that advance the gospel. And for, I hear this, oh, that church reaches people. This church, this church goes deep. Where in the New Testament do you find that? Nowhere. Not a single place. I reject the notion that Kenosha City Church is an evangelism church. I, I want to be a biblical church that includes evangelism, that includes the gospel each and every week. So we all need to get with the program. Because this is why we're here. We're ambassadors of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But when hell's removed from it, we don't have urgency. And we make church into something that we want instead of being on God's idea. John 3, 17. Here's why it's important that we know about hell. It says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to, here it is, save the world through him. So if, there, if we're not talking about hell, most people that hear the gospel, you know, Jesus saves... I think the natural question would be, say, from what? I, I mean, I, yeah, Jesus sounds good, but I don't need saved. Say, from what? Oh, you mean maybe saved from hard things in life? Oh, you know, like there's some things I don't like in life. So if I follow Jesus, then he's going to make me prosper in these areas. This is what people are aligning themselves with. It's called the prosperity gospel. It's where people want Jesus because they actually want something else. That's not the gospel. The gospel is about Jesus and Jesus alone. And saving us from what? Saving us from our sins. That if left uh, unforgiven, we will spend eternity away from God in hell. We need to open our eyes. Church, we should never reduce church to something that it's not. And churches are being reduced to book clubs. Talking about culture, more than about kingdom. There are churches that have rejected hell instead of Instead of getting to circles and discuss so-called Christian books and speak on current cultural things from a cultural perspective, this is all over the country. And many churches have the veneer of the gospel, but when you lift up the hood, you see the unbiblical practices that are driving the mission. The gospel is not about talk. It's not about platitudes. It's about an encompassing of your full life in living that through your life and sharing that with others in your life. Without that, the evangelical church is in danger of abandoning the full gospel and, in, and exchanging it for humanistic, therapeutic, 
deism, devoid of grace, devoid of mercy, full of works and vengeance towards those who don't toe the line to the cultural line and bend scripture with culture. Without hell, there's no urgency to the book of Revelation. I believe that's one of the reasons why Revelation is not taught, because if you teach through the totality of Revelation, you gotta talk about hell. Hell's been put in the taboo category for many even Bible-believing churches, but there can't be heaven if there is no hell. There is hell and there is heaven. Now, I've shared three objections with you. There's way more objections, I'm sure. But let me just give you a reason why we can know for certain that hell is a literal place that we, that we need to have urgency uh, to reach people. Now, let me tell you this. You may have grown up in a ministry where people try to scare people into heaven because of hell. If people are scared into heaven because of hell, they may have missed the Savior. Does that make sense? We want, pe- we want to lead people to Jesus Christ and seeing how his love has been demonstrated on the cross. Does that make sense? Hell should scare the believer. Why? Because we realize if our loved ones don't know Jesus, we know where they're going to spend eternity. It reminds us where we were destined to without the gospel. And so we don't want to scare people into heaven. Can't do that. You want to show people the love of Jesus, but it must include to know what they are being saved from. And the reality of hell was spoken about Jesus. Now, Jesus spoke about it all the time. Jesus spoke about the reality of hell often. He talks about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. In fact, Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. And I believe this, the reason why is, is because he, uh, he wants us to understand the urgency of what we need to be saved from. Jesus even goes into explicit detail of what hell will be like. He says that it'll be an unquenchable fire where people will weep and gnash their teeth in pain. Jesus said that in hell there will be no return. Jesus is very clear. And yet what what sometimes people want to do with Jesus is they want to codify him and they want to make him cultural and where he's only the the loving Jesus, right? Listen, uh, Jesus is the embodiment of love. But we must understand this. Jesus actually said some really, really hard things that people don't quote because it doesn't, it's not popular in culture today. There can't be heaven if there's no hell. Now, as a result of hell, we will see today in Revelation three things. We will see in our text three things. We will see revival, rebellion, and resolution. Now, the passage we started with this morning, just after the Antichrist and the false prophet were thrown in the lake of fire, a new era of revival will hit the church once that occurs. And so let's take a look at Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. A whole new era is now being entered into uh, the timeline of the world. Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. Now, today we're in the church age. We haven't even hit uh, the uh, tribulation yet. That's the last seven years of judgments. What I just read is after that. So let's take a look at a chart here, if we can put that up there. So here we are. We're in the church age again. We're in the church age. You see here that once the church age ends, that's the beginning of the, I believe, in the pre-tribulation. I know some people may differ here. That's okay. Uh, you are raptured or taken to Christ before all the judgments. Many, many people will die in that seven years of judgment. Now, during that seven years of judgment, 
different people will come to Christ. Many will be killed for their faith, but some will survive into what we see the next phase of world history. And it's the last phase of world history. It's called the millennium. All right? And so during the millennium, our spirits were caught up uh, into uh, heaven. And they are now coming down again to earth for a restored earth where Christ will reign for 1,000 years. All right? Now, some people take that 1,000 years as literal. I do. If you don't take the 1,000 years, I, I think there's room for difference because the, the number 1,000 in Scripture is a perfect complete number. So could it be shorter? Sure. But I'm going to take it literally that there will be a 1,000-year reign of Christ uh, on this earth. So today we're in the church to review. Today we're in the church age. Jesus ascended into heaven. He gave us a charge to make disciples. That's what we're supposed to do in the church age. Just before the tribulation, Jesus will take up his church. And at the end of the seven years of judgment, Jesus will reign on earth with the saints, that is, the people who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus of all time. People who gave their lives to Jesus during the tribulation are still alive, will also enter the 1,000-year millennial kingdom. Now, notice in verse 2 what happens during the millennial kingdom. Satan will be bound in an abyss for 1,000 years. Now, the abyss is not hell. The abyss is mentioned throughout Scripture uh, as a holding place, a holding place uh, for different demonic activity, and in this case, Satan himself. Uh, the, kingdom, uh, the, the kingdom will be set up where Christ will be king. Uh, should not be confused with heaven. Heaven is for all eternity. This phase of history, this capstone of history, will only last a thousand years, uh, if you take that number literally. Uh, the millennium will be dominated by righteousness, there'll be no injustice because Jesus is king, Satan is bound. There will be peace and joy. We're even told the wolf will dwell with the lamb. In fact, uh, the prophet Isaiah prophesied what the millennial kingdom will look like in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6. Let me read it for you. It says, the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fattened calf will be together, and a child will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze, their young ones will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like cattle. An infant will play outside with a cobra's pit. Ooh, that's scary. And a toddler will put his hand into a snake's den. They will not harm or destroy each other on my entire holy mountain, for the land will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. Now, this is basically the closest this world's ever going to see to utopia. You see, every politician talks about how they're going to make the world the best place ever, uh, and they always fail. Only King Jesus will bring this peace uh, in this capstone of earthly history. It, the Bible calls it a time of refreshing, where Satan will be bound in the abyss. Now, um, again, uh, there are some theologians that, you know, struggle. Okay, is this a thousand years or not? I think it is. Uh, doesn't necessarily have to be. Uh, but there, there are some people, though, that reject the millennium altogether. Uh, there's a group called amillennialists. Ah, meaning no, no millennium. They believe that the millennium, the millennium is actually happening in our hearts. It's not really a thing, they think. It's like, oh, it's just spiritual in your hearts. And so we are to be kingdom people now, and we are to be kingdom people until Jesus comes back. No millennium. Like that. Big problem I have with that is I really don't think Satan is bound right now. Do you, church? <laughs> right? In fact, you know, we're told uh, in, in the book of Ephesians uh, that we do not battle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. Uh, Satan's still active right now, and that is one of the biggest reasons why. I mean, I guess not having a millennium might be cleaner. It's like, in our minds, like, okay, tribulation, heaven, right? Uh, 
I just don't see it, though. I don't see that Satan is bound today. So I, I don't uh, believe in that view. And then there's another view. It's called post-millennial. Uh, it means that we're in the millennium right now. And the way that we usher, uh, Jesus Christ comes back is we usher him in through revival. And so Jesus isn't coming back until we have revival and until the whole world is Christianized. Sounds like a pretty good idea, but every time you turn on the news, you're like, oh, man, it's not happening yet, right? Like, this was a really popular view until the world wars. Started, re it started coming back right before 9-11. Then it kind of died again, right? Oh, great, another 20 years before Jesus comes back. Here's the deal. Uh, we cannot twist the arm of Jesus to come back. Like, Jesus, we had an awesome worship service today. We prayed for a whole week. You coming back? Uh, he might be like, well, I, I'm going to come back whether you're doing that or not. He said there are whole movements today, and again, they're brothers and sisters, and we can differ on this, but there's whole movements today uh, that they're like, okay, if we worship hard enough, if we do this hard enough, and we reach enough people hard enough, uh, then maybe Jesus will come back. The problem I have with that is this, is it's easy in that notion and mindset that you worship, reach people, and do things for God, not for God alone, but that he can come back. That's a secondary thing. I actually think, ooh, let's, let's follow me here. I actually think that you can idolize the second coming of Jesus, but not Jesus. I think you can actually idolize the concept of heaven. You know, if you're like, oh man, I can't wait to go to heaven. Why? Because I, I had a Harley Davidson here and I wanted my golden Harley Davidson. I'm going to jump some tracks. Like, I hear people talk about that all the time in heaven, right? Everything they want to do in heaven. I'm like, well, what about Jesus, right? I really think we can idolize our concept of heaven and even, even how we can bring back Jesus and forget about Jesus. You see, when you worship, when you reach people for Jesus, when you praise Jesus, our object of affection should be Jesus. He's our end goal. We don't do those things to get something else. If we do anything for Jesus in hopes to get something else, we're guilty of idolatry. Does that make sense? We worship Jesus for Jesus. He is our prize. There's nothing greater than him. I hold to a literal 1,000 year reign of Christ. It's the capstone of history as you can see. Christ's return precedes the 1,000 year millennium. And it ushers in a revival like the world has never seen. Uh, worship is what the people of God do. Revival reveals those that are his. Revival is going to hit during the millennial kingdom. This I believe puts the two bookends. You had the Garden of Eden, which ended in a disaster, and you have the millennium that's going to usher in heaven. It's the two capstones of world history, and that's why I think it's necessary. But just as we anticipate, if you're a follower of Christ today, you get to experience this. You may miss the tribulation, the bad stuff. You're going to get to experience the good stuff in the millennium, all right? But the thing is, we shouldn't just relegate revival to the millennial kingdom. That's going to be the revival of all revivals. We should pray for revival right now. I believe as the world is getting worse, we can have a concurrent revivals and fires of revivals all across the world. We want revival. What revival is this? It is God reviving our heart and making our hearts realigned in a fresh and new way to his initiatives. And so revival, uh, what often precedes revival, is getting right with God. You know, communion was a great way to do that. It's, it's getting right with God. What, what areas of our life are not aligned with the things and purposes of God? Uh, well, is there sin in our heart? Is there, is there things that we're harboring? Getting right with God, number, number one. Number two, what precedes revival is repentance from sin, okay? It, you, you discover sin in your life. That means you need to repent from it. What's repent mean? It means making a 180. 
Sometimes people play this game with God, like, okay, I, I confess my sins. I'm going to go do it tomorrow again. I'm going to confess my sins again. And eh, wrong. Repentance means, you know what? That's not your way, God. I'm walking towards you. That is repentance. It's a 180. Number three, what precedes revival is the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And the fullness of the Holy Spirit is marked always by the fruit of the Spirit. What you need to understand this, church. There are a ton of people out there that say, I'm full of the Spirit. But they, have, they are devoid of the fruit of the Spirit. They may be gifted, but they're not being full of the Spirit in that moment. Someone that's full of the Spirit will exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, period. Not perfectly, all right? We're not perfect. But the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Uh, the, the predecessor, the precursor to revival will be marked by love. 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, it's kind. Love is not jealous, it's not boastful, it's proud or, or rude. It does not demand its own way, it's not irritable, it keeps no record of wrong. It, is, it does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices wherever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, it's always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. Another mark, but right before uh, revivals, and a gospel urgency, it's obedience to God's word, it's prayer. Make no mistake, Revival is not declared. I can't say, well, everybody, next week we're going to have a Kenosha City Church revival because I said so, right? You, you've heard that before. You've heard, like, we're going to have a revival. It's not about an event that you can put on the calendar. Revival can happen at an event that's on the calendar, but, what, but revivals are often spontaneous. Uh, it, it's not because of, of, of the event on your calendar or the three songs that you sang and your song sent. Oh, whoa, we had a great mix of Hillsong, Bethel, and Upper Room. Oh, revival's happening this morning. Now, it, it has nothing to do with that. Not because everyone is outwardly passionate. You can look the part. You can look like the Holy Spirit just bathed you in his glory. But revival isn't about what's happening outward. Revival starts inward. In fact, I love this statement. You want revival to start, draw a circle on the floor, kneel in that circle, and begin to pray fervently and brokenly that God would start the revival in that circle. Revival reveals his people. Revival uh, begins in the heart. Revelation 20, verse 4, Then I saw thrones on which were seated and those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus. And because of the word of God, they had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received the mark on their foreheads. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. So Jesus will be king over the 1,000-year kingdom. The saints will reign with him, but subordinately. They will not reign in line, but down here. Notice in verse 5, though, it says, The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years had ended. Uh, this is speaking of those who never placed their faith and trust in Jesus. So the first resurrection is for the, the saints, you and I, as we uh, populate the millennial kingdom. But the second resurrection will be uh, those who didn't place their faith and trust in Jesus when they face judgment after the millennium. Verse 6, blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them. They will be priests of God, and Christ will reign with them for a thousand years. This thousand-year millennium, giant revival. But note, not everyone will be saved in the millennium. There will be people born during the tribulation that will make it into the millennium who will not have glorified bodies and will continue to have kids. It's these kids that will grow up during this millennium who will rebel at the end of the millennium when Satan is loosed. We'll talk about that next. So we see revival as a mark of, of the judgment we see here. But secondly, we see rebellion. Rebellion reveals those who are opposed to God. So rebellion, let's go ahead and put that on the screen. Rebellion uh, reveals those who are opposed to God. Revelation chapter 20, verse 7. 
When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison, and he'll go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. And the number they are like the sand on the seashore. So the survivors of the tribulation who are still reproducing, you'll have kids uh, who will not give their life to Christ. Um, and after the thousand years are over, they will want to rebel against uh, Almighty God. You don't have to teach a kid to sin, can you? Right? Like, kids, they have a mind of their own. Here, check this out. This is a picture of my son, Graham, right? Uh, he has a mind of his own. There he is. He's wearing my shoes outside. I'm like, where did my shoes go? He was wearing those all outside yesterday. He's, he's been doing, he's been getting a little free in the kitchen. He's been breaking our, our stuff in the kitchen. Why? Because he's getting a little bit more independent. But as you're independent, guess what word you get to hear more often? No, right? Hey, you're going to do this. No, I'm not. You're not? No. And then he has a temper tantrum. He looks really cute right there. Oh, he can cry for an hour. All right? That's what I'm telling you right right now. He could cry for an hour because he wants to see if he's going to break our will. Well, let me tell you this. These kids that grew up in the millennial kingdom, they have the same sin nature that you and I have. And a number of them will say no to Almighty God. It seems crazy. But with the deception of Satan coming out at the end of that thousand years, they will try uh, to... Uh, throughout the ways of God, we see this in verse 9, they marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. So this is quicker than Armageddon, all right? And the devil who deceived them was thrown in the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. And they were tormented day and night forever and ever. So Armageddon wasn't even a battle, it was quick, but this was even quicker. At the end of a thousand years, Satan and the devil were thrown into the lake of fire, just like the Antichrist, and they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. Rebellion is a mark of satanic activity, and what we see here uh, is he wants us to rebel right now against the ways of God. He wants us to seek, kill, destroy, and divide, just like him. But the people of God, we are to be grace givers, we are to be hope dealers, we are to be different than the ways of the enemy. The enemy comes to seek, kill, and destroy, but Jesus has come to give life and life abundantly. As God throws the enemy into hell, we see resolution as God judges everyone who has ever lived. And that's our third and final point. Resolution is brought by God through eternal judgment. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Then I, so this is after the millennium. We're getting ready to get right into heaven, which will be next week. Then I saw a great white throne who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place from them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. The Bible says it's appointed once for a person to live, and then they die and face judgment. We will all face the great white throne of God. We'll all face the judgment seat of Christ. The great great white throne means judgment will be final and it'll be pure. The person who sits on the throne is none other than King Jesus. He will, he will judge justly. The books will be open. And what you will see in the books is every sin you ever committed. And you're like, oh, crud. Except if your name's written in the book of life, then every single one of your sins has been crossed off. And what he sees instead of your sin and your life Jesus sees his righteousness on you. But for all those who do not have Christ as Savior, the list of all their sins stand against them. And they will be separated. Those that are in Christ heaven 
those that are not in Christ, eternal punishment in hell. The dead were judged according to what they had done as they recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in them, and death and Hades gave up the dead, and they were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then the death and Hades were thrown in the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name is not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. If you're in Christ, he sees your sin no more. But the question is this morning, I want to ask each and every one of you, are you ready? If you were to stand before Jesus Christ right now, are you ready? If your neighbors and your family and your friends were to stand before Jesus right now, are they ready? Are you sure? So let's take time right now and examine our hearts. I want you to know in this room today that you're worth 100% without a shadow of a doubt ready to stand before the King of Kings. Let's pray. Are you ready? Lord Jesus, make us ready. Make us sure. I just pray if there's anybody in this room right now that has any doubts that they know, they've never personally asked you for forgiveness. They've never personally placed their faith and trust in you alone. That they would do that right now. As we continue to pray with every head's bowed and eyes closed, I just want to speak to anybody in this room. Right now, if you're unsure you're going to heaven, uh, if, if you've never personally, you listen, your parents can't do it for you, nobody else can do it for you, you have to personally say, Lord Jesus, I place my faith and trust in you. I, I, I'm asking for forgiveness. If you've never personally done that, then your name's not in the Lamb's Book of Life. You need to ask Jesus right now to save you, and your name will be written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So with every head's bowed and eyes closed, if today you know that you want to place your faith and trust in Jesus, today you want to place your faith and trust in him knowing that your sins will be forgiven, with no one looking around on the count of three, I want you to raise that hand up high. Say, yeah, that's me. Every head's bowed, eyes closed, count of three, one, two, three. Raise that hand up high. Say, yeah, that's me. I'm placing my faith and trust, thank you, in him alone. Anybody else? Raise that hand up high. Say, yeah, that's me. It's not raising your hand that saves you. You're just indicating, you know what, I want to make certain today. I want to make certain today. Will you just pray with me if that's you? I'm going to help you pray. This prayer doesn't even save you. Jesus saves you. You're just communicating them. I'm going to help you communicate to them. Just, just pray with me. Say, Lord Jesus, I realize I've done wrong. I've sinned. I need your forgiveness. I place my faith and trust in you alone. Thank you for dying on the cross for saving me from my sins. Thank you for raising from the dead. Help me follow you now. In Jesus' name. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode. If you would like to know more about Kenosha City Church, then check us out online at kenosha.church or on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Kenosha City Church. Lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to follow us so that you never have to miss an episode. At Kenosha City Church, we are not perfect people, but real people being made new through Jesus.